Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of All Together Now, A Zombie Story, which is a young adult novel about, you guessed it, zombies. And I bet you thought I was going to say Manicure Bones and the Giant Robot Beast. Well, I wrote that also. And good news, it's available as a paperback and audiobook, and the ebook is free. Free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Don't worry about me. I'll get your money on the sequels. Plus, you're going to pay cash for all together now, a zombie story. So we're going to be just fine. Uh, as always, head to middlegradeninja.com for thousands of interviews with literary agents, editors, authors, all the world's best people. Uh, everybody who's anybody is at middlegradeninja.com, including uh, tonight's very special guest, uh, Sarah J. Schmidt, who originally had done a seven-question interview uh, to promote your book, uh, what was it? It, it's, it's a Wonderful Death, um, and now has a brand new book, uh, Where There's a Whisk, which just released Tuesday. So good news, esteemed audience. You don't have to wait this time. It is available now, and you could be ordering it while we are speaking. Uh, Sarah, how are you tonight? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Excited to be on this episode of Middle Grade Ninja. It's been a lifelong dream for forever. <laughs> well, at least uh, a two or three year dream. <laughs> well, well, actually, I was, uh, you, you and I had talked about, you and I and the, and the other young adult cannibals had talked about starting a uh, podcast. In fact, we had a fancy microphone that it felt like we passed around between us. And I have not used that microphone once the entire time we've been doing the show. I was thinking about that this like earlier today because we had talked about like let's do this and then life happened and then I was like when you started doing this podcast I was really excited because at least one of us was you know making good on that dream to do the podcast and interview authors so it really is an honor to be here and I'm super excited to be one of your guests. Well um, esteemed audience doesn't know you like I know you uh, and they but they do know I'd never summarize anybody else's biography or anybody else's book. Uh, why would I make you sit through that? Uh, so let's start with, if you would, give a uh, esteemed audience kind of an overview of your background. Um, so I am the author of two books. The first book is, like you mentioned, is um, It's a Wonderful Death. And then my new book is Where There's a Whisk. I like to write fun, light-hearted YA books. When I'm not writing, I'm also the mom of two. I am also a college admissions counselor as of about six weeks ago. So that's been interesting. I'm getting to work with first year students, which is the age group, the demographic that I really like to write for um, when I'm putting pen to paper. Um, I have a dog and uh, my room is eventually going to, my office is eventually going to look like a Ravenclaw common room. So very into Harry Potter, um, the problematic author aside. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I feel like we should still be allowed to enjoy the work that has meant so much to us, even if we have to, you know, give her the side eye. Mm. And if esteemed audience uh, is curious, I never get tired of bragging that I had the opportunity to chat with uh, author, or I'm sorry, editor Cheryl Klein, who worked on the Harry Potter books, mm -hmm. and she had some uh, very choice words about J.K. Rowling in her most recent comments. That's episode 100. I wouldn't say you're wrong, esteemed audience. As soon as you're done listening to us here, go back and check that out. I know I will be. <laughs> so I know you had wanted to be an author since elementary school. Is that right? What's your first memory of wanting to be an author? 
Um, so I was obsessed with the choose your own adventure books. And I was probably in fourth grade when I realized that um, the author got to control the characters. Well, I thought the author controlled the characters. I've learned so much since then. I was just but a fourth grader, you know. And then I told my mom, I'm like, I'm going to be an author when I grow up. And she's like, that's great. You still have to go walk the dog. And that was kind of the the beginning, the humble beginnings of my dream to be a writer um, and to publish books. I didn't know what I was going to write because I was, you know, 10, but um, maybe nine. Um, but yeah, I just, I've always wanted to be a writer. I always knew I was going to be, um, but it took a little longer than I had expected to get there. Doesn't it almost always, except for, except for those few rare people that we all are so happy for, because it's a very supportive community, of course. Right, so <laughs> happy for them. So, so happy for their immediate success. You were a big, uh, big reader, right? Mm -hmm. um, I've always been a reader. Um, my very first book that I ever bought on my own, I still remember what it was called. It was My Mother the Witch. I recently found it on eBay and ordered a copy because I felt like I had to have that book just because it meant so much and stuck with me. Um, but yeah, I've been reading nonstop since I was a kid. And I think it was obviously like there, like reading and writing are two different hobbies. But for me, writing was the extension of being able to escape into those worlds that I found in the books. And then I got to go create them. And that was such an, like, it was cathartic. It was really cathartic. I didn't have like the best home life growing up. Um, things were kind of rough around my house. And that was where I always turned to. I turned to books to escape, like so many of us do. And when I found myself wanting to stay in those worlds longer and longer, that was kind of where I was like, yeah, I've, I've got to figure out a way to make this happen. It wasn't until I became a mom, though, that I actually sat down and wrote my first book. I don't know what that means about escapism when you have two under two. But, yeah, I was trying to escape. What I just heard is if esteemed audience is looking to become an author, the first thing you need to do is have a child, obviously. I, that or like serious trauma. One of the two. <laughs> One of both, sure. Go for it. Uh, and I know that you had uh, uh, come in second at a countywide writing contest when you were a freshman in high school and did not become bitter and jaded when the English teacher's son managed to win it. Is that right? I can't believe you brought that up. Um, yeah, no, that's all true. My English teacher's son beat me, and um, to this day, I'm never, ever going to accept. I mean, I know it's cliche now, but it was rigged. Like, that was totally rigged. Whatever. I've grown. I've moved well, on. This uh, privileged son of an English teacher, uh, has, he, has he gone on to uh, write and publish two novels at this point? Uh Probably not. No, probably. I don't not. know. I don't know. I'm I'm gonna assume not because had I seen him at any of the book conventions or something, like my spidey senses would have tingled and I'd have been like, "There's the villain." So, yeah. Ah, he would have come up to you and said, "Ah, being the son of an English teacher, it's it's so difficult. I was as much a victim as you, and then you could have commiserated." Mm, yeah, that's exactly how it would have ended. Well, you lost. You might have lost the battle, but you obviously have won the war. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, and I know that you had, I'm going to bring up all your trauma just right away, but I know that you had also had a very bad experience of someone making fun of your writing that stopped you writing for a time. And I yeah. know that anybody who ever does anything creative is going to have somebody uh, that, that says something crappy to them about it. Just that's, just that's just the law of nature, it seems like. So how did you overcome that? And how might anybody listening who's had a similar experience overcome that? So what I... Okay, I'll tell you what I learned from the experience later. But what happened is I was in high school as a senior and I had been writing and one of my friends had picked up my book while I was getting a drink at the water fountain and she was reading what I'd been writing and she was laughing. And of course, I'm like, oh my gosh, she's making fun of me. Like, this is the worst thing ever. I like, like, you know, in cartoons where people like animals are running and their feet are going really fast, but they're not moving. And then all of a sudden they just vroom, right? I totally did that. Um, cause at least that's in my mind, that's how it worked out. Um, so I went over and I snatched the book and that was the last time I wrote anything until I was in college. And even then it was just like two paragraphs maybe. Um, so the moral, like the, the end of this story is she actually reached out to me on Facebook several years ago and was like, the one thing I remember about you is you were like, we were friendly. So she knew a little bit more, but she's like, I just remember what a good writer you were. And I'm like, seriously, like for this is probably 20 years I've been carrying this around. And she's like, no, like I really enjoyed writing what you wrote. And so what I kind of took from that is um, people are going to have their opinions and they're going to make comments. It doesn't matter if you're a writer or, a, you know, you perform in a band or whatever. People are going to have criticism or you're going to interpret things that they say or do as criticism. But the bottom line is you're the one who decides whether or not you're going to accept that or not. And so from that point on, I realized that I wasn't going to give anybody else any power over my love for my work, my love for my characters. I was going to own them, you know, scars and all, and we were going to go forward. And so because of that, I'm not afraid to read reviews. But I do get a little upset sometimes, but I do read my reviews because I'm curious about what people think of my books. And but that experience taught me that just because they think something doesn't make it true. So ignore the naysayers. And then, um, well, uh, I know that, well, you know, let's just skip to you've got two under two. Uh, and I know that you were inspired by Stephanie Meyer. Is that right? I was, but not in, like, a nice way. <laughs> oh, I'm glad I brought it up. <laughs> um, I was. I was inspired by Stephanie Meyer. So when my kids were little, she, like, Twilight had come out. The movies were starting to come out. Like, you know, it was a phenomenon. All the moms at my future school, my kids' future school were all, like, raving about it. And she was on Ellen, and she was doing this interview, and she was saying, you know, like how Twilight started was because she had this dream about this boy and this girl in this valley, and they kissed, and she wanted to see what happened and how it worked out. And she's like, I never really wanted to write a book, you know, but I, I wanted to see how the story ended. And I'm folding towels like you do when you have two under two and you're watching Ellen, and I'm folding towels, and I realize that I'm like, like ripping them apart. <laughs> And I'm like, I have always wanted to book and or write a book. And she's only got, or she's got three kids and I've only got two kids. So if she didn't want to write a book and she wrote a book. I could write a book. And that was where it all came from. So it was really anger that she was so nonchalant. Like, yeah, I never write, wanted to write a book and look at all my bestsellers. And I was just like, whatever, Stephanie. <laughs> 
<laughs> I really do like people. It's just it's not coming off that way. <laughs> no, we're gonna we're gonna get to that. Esteemed audience should know that you are an extreme supporter of the writing community. Uh, whether it's the Midwest Writers Workshop that you're working with, whether it's RosieCon, what what all are you doing? What uh, what events are you supporting? Um. Well, Midwest has kind of gone virtual, so that's I haven't been as active with that. But Midwest Writers Workshop is definitely where I learned my skills to become a published author. I I was like so many people who walk into your first writing conference and you're like, I've got the book that's going to blow all the agents away. I'm so good. I'm so great. That's actually where I met you the very first time we were sitting next together in Marcus Seiki's breakout or intensive. And that's where I first met Middle Grade Ninja. Um, but I thought that I knew everything. And that that one weekend made me realize that I knew nothing and I needed to work really hard to learn a lot. So I became really active with Midwest Writers, attended, I think, 10 years that I went. And I presented at a couple. Um, they actually at one point asked me to join their um, board of directors, but I didn't feel like I had a whole lot to contribute. Because I was still trying to figure out my way in publishing too, but it was a really, a really great honor, and it meant a lot. Um, and then I'm also involved. Indiana or Indiana has a uh, comp, like a book award for high schoolers called the Elliot Rosewater Book Award, and I've been fortunate enough to be on that committee for the last three years. So reading lots and lots of YA books and putting those books out there for high school students to read and vote on. Um, before that, I was with Young Hoosiers, which is our middle school or middle grade book award for Indiana. And then my book award, Pride and Joy, my bucket list experiences, I got to sit on the William C. Morris Award for YA debut novels. So that was that was the best experience that I've had on a book award committee. That's the librarian and me trying to, you know, stay in the game. <sighs> <laughs> well, I, uh, that, obviously, I'm assuming that, well, what opportunities does that provide you with? And also, how much of a commitment of your time are we talking? I know that you've always got an impossibly long list of books to read. Um, it is, it is a pretty long commitment. Um, the Morris Award was the hardest. My, my debut was coming out, or had, my debut had just come out. So it was the year after my book debuted. And I think that book, that committee, we've read like cover to cover, probably about 150 to 200 books. And then I read the first three chapters of probably 80 to 100 books. Um, and then we discussed all of the ones we finished. So that was a huge time commitment. Um, but I, I loved it because first of all, it was debut books. And I love to support debut authors. Uh, I always have. I always watch ALA's book awards when they're, you know, done online, and and I always rush out to get those those Morris Book Award nominees just because I think there's something special about writing your first book, and you have the freedom to do whatever you want, and you have the time to do whatever you want in your story, and there isn't word count restrictions. There's you just are writing for the pure love of writing, and that hope that somebody's going to see your work. Um, they're, they're not always the best written books ever, but there is something about those debut books is just, 
I just, I get it. Like, I just love them so much. And so being on that committee was awesome. Um, the other books committees, it's been great because when I go into libraries or go into schools, I can talk books with these kids that have read, you know, they're reading what I'm reading. And that makes it a lot easier to connect with them and, and get them to relax around you when you're doing school visits. And of course, I'm assuming that provides you all sorts of networking opportunities. Um, it does with, uh, especially with the Indiana ones, I'm, everybody on the committee with the exception of maybe me is a librarian. And I, I did do the librarian thing for a little while, but um, decided to take a little bit more time to focus on writing. So yeah, it does definitely give me um, some connections to meet with librarians. And so when I go to different conferences and stuff, there are friendly faces in the audience and that's always fabulous. I assume it's also easier to uh, approach people when you want to get signing set up, when you want to get do be part of events. Oh, we know Sarah because she was with us for this and this and that. Um, yeah, sometimes. Um, and it's like sometimes I'll get school visits um, from people that I've worked with in the past, which is always great to get to see their students. Um, but honestly, it was that joy of reading that made me want to do the book awards, just being able to. Well, there are free books. OK, that's the biggest perk that you get with me oh. on this book award committee, as is evident by the walls of books. Um, so that definitely doesn't hurt. But a lot of the books that don't go on to make the list, I go ahead and donate to our local high school or to our local junior high um, because they don't have all the room in the world. But yeah, there, I mean, there are some, but there's something about, and this is the same with writers, there's something about being in a room full of people who love books and who want to talk about books. And I don't always have that in my day-to-day -day life. So when I get that chance to be involved with groups that feel that way, then I'm absolutely 100% going to take that opportunity. You know, when I was uh, working a day job and was relatively early on with the blog, I would come in, I was working finance, uh, and I would tell everybody that, oh my God, I'm jumping up and down excited. Richard Adams is going to appear at Little Great Ninja. And they're like, who? But the author of Watership Down, what? Like, oh, you normies are killing me. I got to go find writers and book people, and then they could jump up and down and be excited with me. Mm hmm. I had his book over my shelf. <laughs> is it Watership Down or which one is it? It is. I love Watership Down. I've, I've loved that book since I was probably too young to read it because it's a really violent book. <laughs> but <laughs> one of the things I love about it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I've, I've loved that book since I was probably in third or fourth grade. I think about that, uh, Warren. There's there's many moments from that book I think about often because I've reread it so many times. But uh, when the Warren, where they uh, get all the food they can eat, but every so often one of the rabbits is going to get entrapped and 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 mm -hmm. killed, and everybody just pretends, oh, we didn't see that. We're comfortable. Mm -hmm. Yep, I've been there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did work in finance, so. <laughs> Well, no, um, no finance. Uh, there, there's there's good financial professionals and, and, and bad ones. And I always felt like I was mostly with the uh, with the financial angels, if there could be said to be such a thing. The one time I wasn't, I quit. Okay. So I, they they asked me to do something that I felt was taking advantage. And I well, appreciate your employment up to this point. Enjoy the rest. Actually, I wrote a letter uh, of. Um, brief brief anecdote. I wrote my resignation letter and sent it to the whole company. Um, that 
for whatever reason, the day after I left, they came in and gave everybody a raise. <laughs> so I actually consider that to be one of my most profitable pieces of writing, just not for me. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you start writing, you start writing seriously then after being inspired with the, the two under two. What does that look like when you get started? Um, well, at first it was just finding my voice you know, figuring out how to write. Again, it had been so long. And it was a lot of time at the computer between naps. Um, there was no editing because that part of my brain was barely functioning at that point. Um, so it was just a lot of, okay, well, the first book that I wrote when I seriously was trying to write, um, it was, ironically enough, coming full circle, it was a reality television show. But it was a dating, <laughs> it really was. Um, I just put all of this together just now. Like that was a moment that I just had. Um, and it was about reality dating. And it was so bad that I couldn't even finish it. And the last chapter that I wrote, I put all the characters on a bus. And then the bus drives over a cliff and there's a fire explosion because none of those characters could ever be resurrected. They were so horrible. Um, and it's still in a manila envelope. When we moved, I found it in this, in this room somewhere and I can't bring myself to like burn it or shred it because I feel like that's just going to put more toxins in the air and into the world. And let's be honest, this world can't handle much more of that. So I'm just going to live with it. The embarrassment in my soul for the rest of my life. Um, so I wrote that book and what I really learned from that though, it was actually a really eye-opening experience because I learned how not to write. That was a book that I had planned every chapter, every scene in the chapter, every detail was outlined before I even sat down to write anything. And I felt like I was stuck in a story that I didn't want to write. And that is not my style. I am not a planner. Um, I like to have an idea where I'm going and then I like to just write for fun. And that was what happened with the first book I wrote that I pitched to agents was I just wrote stuff that I was really into and enjoyed reading. And I was reading like, oh, Rachel Vincent, Stephanie Meyer. I was shapeshifters and vampires and Sookie Stackhouse and just all that stuff. So I wrote a paranormal and it was it was fun and i wrote the characters younger because i realized i liked the age group of twilight and hunger games and all of that like i liked that that age group and i wrote about experiences and these characters were great because they were so flawed and they were so still trying to figure out who they were and that was kind of when that realization that i am a YA author and i will probably always be a YA author was solidified um, and that book, yeah, it'll always, I'm actually, that's, that's a passion project I want to go back to now that I'm a more seasoned writer and have more experience in character and plot development. It's a book I want to go back to and maybe see if we can make some, some fun stuff happen with it. So what was it, what do you think it is that, that makes you want to write specifically about teens? Mm. I think because in every teen book, no matter how dark it is, 
there's still always that element of hope. And these characters are still figuring out who they are. And there's still this element that they, like this, they could go anywhere. Like their story could go anywhere. Um, and I think it's just that, I think that that appeals to me, this idea that their future hasn't been tainted with as much. No, that's not necessarily true, but it hasn't been tainted with real life, like that adult life that sometimes can drag you down. And I like not dealing with that. <laughs> Fair enough. So, um, when do you get to well i know that you had written uh, it's a wonderful death in 23 days 28 days 23 days um so this the second book i wrote was an eco virus destroys the world and mankind needs to figure out how to rebuild that kind of story i know those are so rare to find in ya nowadays um or back then so i was kind of talking to my mom and I said, I don't know, maybe this writing thing isn't for me. Like, I've written these two books. I think they're good. Agents are kind of interested in them. I get a lot of requests. And then they're all like, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. Maybe I'm just not, you know, you don't have the talent. Maybe this is just a dream and I've tried it and it didn't work. And my mom was really cool. Like, she's the one who, when I called her and said, I think I want to drop out of grad school, was like, okay, drop out of grad school. That's fine. I don't care. Like in a very supportive way. <laughs> that sounds a little like she really didn't care, but her thing was do what's making you happy, do what you enjoy. And so she just asked me a simple question. She's like, if you could write anything without worrying about whether it was going to sell or worrying about what people are going to think about it, what would you write? And I had been watching um, Lost at the time. And I made the comment, I'm tired of trying to save the world. I just want to save the cheerleader. And I was saying it as a little sarcastic snarkiness. But the more I thought about it, the more I was like, no, like I want to write a fun book that deals with death, but has this really mean, almost unsavable main character who really pushes that envelope. And you're like, oh, I don't want to like her. Like nothing in the world can make me like her and then find a way to make the audience like her, not just like like her, but root for her. And so that's where It's a Wonderful Death came from, killing off my character on page one. Spoiler. <laughs> yeah, if you don't want to know what happens, don't read the first page. I suppose the, I suppose the title is a bit of a spoiler. <laughs> Somebody's dying somewhere in that book. So 23 days, I'm assuming that's not the version that you signed with uh, with Liza. Uh, yeah. who, Liza, Liza's last name is Liza Fleiss. Royce, uh, your literary agent. Or Liza. Well, she's Liza Fleissig, but Liza Royce Agency. Um, no, so I, this was probably early October when my mom and I were having this conversation. And so NaNoWriMo was coming up. And I decided I was going to write my book. I was going to do NaNoWriMo. And yeah, I sat down. I spent almost every free time, every free moment that I had in front of the computer typing out this book. And it was an ugly first draft, but it was a really fun story. Um, my husband was really supportive. He took care of the kids and made sure that they were fed. I mean, I'm assuming he made sure they were fed because they're still alive. So... <laughs> We're just going to go on that assumption. 
but he's been really supportive of me pursuing my dream. And so he was like, okay, just, just do this. And so um, I finished the book on the 23rd of November and then I finished revisions. Um, the first round of revisions on New Year's Eve that year, because I wanted to start the new year with something that was potentially sellable. So, yeah, but it was not, it was not what I sent to my agent, to the, well, to the, the person who eventually became my agent. Um, it was a mess. It was a hot mess. So, do you, do you happen to have some idea of how many drafts you had to do to get it in shape? Um, to send it to Liza was probably nine drafts. It was really bad. But when you write in, when you write, you know, seventy thousand words in twenty three days, it's gonna be garbage. Um, but there was so much fun in it that it was really easy to fix up. So, but I think, but by the time I gave, I submitted it to her. The end of May, I think it had gone through eight or nine drafts. And then when she got it, we went through it again. So a total of nine to 10 drafts before we went out on submission. And then what's the what's the process you follow to, to literary agent? Um, I, I, okay, so I'm going to preface this with my story is not normal. It's not don't expect this to happen. I got lucky, lucky, lucky um, in my situation. But so I used QueryTracker.net to track all the agents that I was interested in, to track all the queries that I had sent out for all of my different projects. And after I finished this, one of the things that I picked up from going to Midwest Writers is if your query letter doesn't work, you're not getting requests. You need to fix your query letter. And I felt so good about this book. Like this was just, it was completely different from what I'd written before, but it was so much more my style and my voice that um, I just felt really good. There was something about it that I'm like, this is, this is it, this is the one. And so I went on querytracker.net and I looked to see, oh, my agent's gonna kill me when she finds out. Um, I looked for all the agents who had quick responses and also had a high level of yeses, like requesting stuff. Because if I couldn't get those people to request my novel, then my query letter probably didn't work. That was my rationale. That's what I was thinking. And then um, that's exactly what I did. I sent it to 10 agents. And of those 10, I got requests from three. Liza, um, sorry, I have teenagers at home. Uh, Liza requested the full, but she wanted an exclusive. And, you know, when you go to, to a lot of, of writing conferences, they'll be like, oh, if they ask for exclusives, you just want to steer clear because that's not how we do things. And, you know, the industry, they assume you've got it out with other people. And so I sent out, she's going to be so bad. I sent out the request from the other people and then I emailed her and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm sorry, I can't do an exclusive because these other people have it. And um, there was a lot of back and forth. And eventually she said, okay, I'm gonna waive my exclusive. I can't stop thinking about your query letter. I would really like to see your pages. So this was on like a Wednesday, she asked for the pages. Maybe it was Tuesday. Tuesday or Wednesday, she asked for the pages. I spent 24 hours like going through and polishing up as much as I possibly could. And then I sent it off to her. And I didn't expect to hear from her for a very long time. So on Friday, I got an email that said, 
I love this. I have so many thoughts. Can we talk? Like, can we have a phone call? And I was like, <gasps> the phone call, the phone call. That's the big thing. Um, and we had originally set the phone call for Sunday. And I don't know why. Neither of us knows why we did that. Because, like, she had something going on at her kid's school. I had something going on with the family. Like, we were trying to, like, like put this really important phone call in like a 20 minute window that we had that overlapped. We ended up pushing it off till the following Tuesday because we wanted to like really like have some time to to talk. Um, we talked on Tuesday and I, I think I knew the first moment, like the first five minutes that this was the agent for me. I really, she, talked so fast and with such a New York accent that I really had to focus to pay attention to <laughs> what she was saying. And, but what I, what I got in my gut besides like the goosies in my gut, I was like, I think she loves this book maybe a little bit more than I do. And that's what I wanted in an agent. I wanted somebody who was going to like be passionate about this story, see and love RJ for all her flaws and want to like help me get this story out into the world. And so I had the book out with some other people at that point. I did the whole, okay, um, give me two weeks because I've got age, other agents have this book. And, you know, as a courtesy and she was fine. She was very, very concerned that I was making good moves with for my career. So she did not want to like push the subject while the book was out with other agents. She didn't want me to burn any bridges. Um, and she didn't, you know, she was, and I, and I respected that because she was already not my agent, but already looking out for my career, making sure that I was making smart moves. And Thursday, I called her, and this was before, I think, before it was a, it was a holiday weekend, so I'm gonna say it must have been Memorial Day. And I, I called her on Thursday, and I was like, "You're the one." Like I, I've been thinking about it, and I. Uh, you're my agent. And she's like, okay, so we're going to get off the phone. You're going to call or contact every single one of those agents and withdraw. I'm not going to send you an offer until you have told me you have contacted all the other agents and withdrawn. Again, still looking out for my career, still making sure that in the, in the industry, like I didn't have a black mark against my name because they did it wrong. And again, that was another reason why I'm like, this is, this is the most amazing woman ever. So we did that, signed the contract, and we sold the book. The, the first time we sold the book, I think, was in, was in August or September of that year. So we went from like, like less than a week to becoming a, connected through the agency and then took a couple more months to sell the book. So the, the first time? Okay, so yeah, this you is a follow-up question, right? <laughs> I I set you up for it because I wanted to talk about this. I want to talk about this because it was probably one of the most traumatic things that's happened to me on the like in the publishing world, but it's also I think the, one of the things that made me stronger, and it's a message I want to get out to other authors because or other you know aspiring writers and authors. So the, we sold my book to a publishing house. We had three offers for the book. We ended up going with a publishing house in England. 
And I really liked the books they were putting out. I liked their covers. I loved the editor. It was just a really good match. And so we signed with them. And the book was due to come out the following year in 2024. And I get a call from my agent about a month before the month and a half before the due, the book is due to like come out. And I've been asking for like cover art and stuff and they kept pushing me off. And so she asked me, are you sitting down? And she was very calm and she was talking very slow and I could barely tell that she had a New York accent. So that made me very scared. Um, and I said, well, I'm driving an F-250. And she's like, you might want to pull over. And I'm thinking, oh no, have they pushed my book back? What's happened? Um, and then that is when she tells me that effective the next day, my publisher, the publisher was closing its doors and it was a limit. It was canceling all of its contracts for all of its YA books. And I took me a little while to figure out what that meant, but basically I'd lost my contract and I was absolutely devastated. And I thought this is the worst thing that could possibly happen. And I went into a really serious funk because, you know, it's it's kind of that thing where you've been working for so long to get your dream and you've, you've done everything you thought you were supposed to do and you reach that dream and you've got it and it's right there in your hands and then it just shatters in your hands. That's what it felt like. Um, so I kind of went into a funk. For that moment, are we talking about? Pardon? Between the, the two novels and from the from the time you had two under two to that moment, how many years of investment of your time and heart and energy are we talking? Probably about seven years. That had been about six to seven years of working and writing three books and having two books just never make it and finally getting to, the, to that thing. And, and a lot of times when you're an aspiring writer looking for traditional publication, like you see that getting that agent is the first gate that you cross through. Like that makes you a real traditional author. Um, then, then it's selling your manuscript and like all of that. And like, once you get there, you're like, yes, this is, this is what I was promised. This is what it was supposed to do. I, um, I have a lot of respect for, for those people who go out and they do self-publishing or they work with an independent press or something like that. I really do because that takes a lot of guts and that takes a lot of work. Um, I didn't have the guts or the work ethic <laughs> to do that. Um, so here I was sitting there and and I felt like everything had collapsed. Like it was like, why did I even bother? And it hurt. I, I can't even express how devastated it was. Um, but this is why, and some people are like, why do you have an agent? You should just do it on your own. And for some people that might work for them. For me, that was the moment that solidified that from now until the time I am 100% sure I'm done writing or she retires, I will never, ever leave my agent. Because while I was weeping and moping, we accepted their offer uh, a couple, like in September, I think. And then it came out the following October. So um, that's why you pay agents their percentage, because when you can't get your stuff done, they either make you get their stuff done, your stuff done, or they find a way to get it done themselves. They just, I could never pay her enough for what she did for me that in that particular moment. So I hope that makes up from being really sneaky when she first contacted me to see if she, I was interested in working with her. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, one more follow-up, and then I'm going to talk about where there's a whisk available now, esteemed audience. Um, but um, you had mentioned that she uh, told you that before she, you could accept her offer of representation, you had to contact every other agent so it would be kosher. Why, for everybody who might be in a similar situation but doesn't have a great agent that gives them that advice, why is that so important? So when you notify um, an agent that you have an offer of representation for a book that they're looking at, they're going to drop everything else that they're doing if they're remotely interested, maybe not everything, but everything that they can and move you to the top of their pile. And because, especially because this was um, a holiday weekend, they were gonna be spending their holiday weekend reading my manuscript and trying to decide what to do. And if I had made my decision, the the respectful thing to do is say, I appreciate it, you, and I am really sorry that this didn't work out, but I want to withdraw my manuscript so you don't waste their time. That really is, it's crazy the number of emails and submissions that agents get on a daily basis. And that time is really precious. So I didn't, she did not want anybody being upset, maybe calling on Monday with an offer of representation. And I was like, yeah, I already decided last week. And they'd spent their whole weekend and given that up for me. So she was really wanting to make sure that that not just me personally, but also the authors in her agency were seen as, you know, respectful of the process. Gotcha. Makes sense. Important tip for, for everyone who's listening. Uh, and I should let esteemed audience know that I have secured your permission to talk a bit about money and possibly a bit about hybrid publishing. And we are absolutely going to do that. We'll tease that. That's coming. Stay with us, esteemed audience. But my God, let's talk about this brand new book, Where There's a Whisk. So as promised, I do not summarize your bio. I do not summarize your book. What does esteemed audience need to know as they're purchasing their copy? So Where There's a Whisk is a mostly fun and lighthearted story about a girl from the Florida Panhandle who has been dealt a pretty rough life. She's got some some skeletons in her closet. Her dad's in jail. Her mom is, you know, so despondent because dad's in jail that she loses her business. They have to move in with her aunt. And then she gets this opportunity to go on a reality cooking competition and in her mind, this is the time where she's going to change her life. She's going to win the competition, of course, and she's going to <laughs> prove that she's the best and she's going to get out of this no stoplight town and move on to the big city and become this culinary success. And along the way, she finds out that reality television isn't as real as some people might think it is. Uh, by not as real as some people think it is, you mean that it is scripted and she's essentially asked to, is it spoiler if I say that? But no, it's in the description. No, I, um, she, so with reality television, it is scripted. Like there is some scripting to it. Not everything is word for word scripted, but the producers are wanting drama. The producers are wanting action. And especially when you're dealing with teenagers and you're wanting to get like the foodie crowd, but you're also wanting to get the YA crowd. You know, they're looking for, for whatever is going to kind of spice up the ratings. And if everybody gets along super nice and there's no conflict, then there's not a whole lot of, of drama. So that was the challenge for Peyton because she just wanted to come in, do her job, prove that she was awesome. Um, part of the problem is she's not the best cook that's there. So she has to figure out how to stay in the competition. And one of the routes that was proposed to her is, hey, play this role 
and we'll let you stay around longer. If you give us some drama, if you are involved in some of these side stories, we'll keep you around. And so it became this question of how much was she willing to give up of her dream of starting over in order to stick around? So who is the ideal reader for this story? I think anybody who likes reality television, I think um, would, would enjoy the show. I did do a lot of research about what it's like to be backstage at especially cooking competitions. And and I really tried to to build that into that. I think anyone who likes light, fun romance would enjoy this. Um, anyone who's just finished like a really dark, deep trilogy and needs something to just kind of lighten their their aura would probably enjoy this. It's It's a fun kind of beachy read. It's set in the summer. It's set in New York City. There's a lot of of scenes that take place around the city. Um, and it just really, hopefully people will think it is it is that kind of summer breezy read. Uh, and I have a, an absolute duty uh, to mention that for esteemed audience who is going to get their copy of Where There's a Whisk, and that's how they're gonna spend their weekend and then their, their appetite is gonna be set and they're gonna say, I want another book about a cooking reality show. They should also check out previous guest, Chris Nacron, who's on episode 131, and his book, Super Chef. And the reason it's at one, we all love Chris Nacron, we wanna promote his stuff. Uh, but two, I mentioned your book when we talked about his. And so, well, well fair is fair. I gotta, I gotta make sure. <laughs> That is fine. I think, yeah, anyone who likes cooking, there's a lot of cooking in this in this book. So, um, well, let's talk a little bit about the, the research you've got to do, because this is, Peyton's not in a small Indiana town. She's in Florida. Then you've got to figure out a little bit about New York City, and then you've got to do uh, research about reality television, recipes. How do you go about doing that and make sure that you're giving us an authentic view of what a reality show would be? Well, so even though I live in Indiana now, I actually grew up in South Florida. So I know the difference between the Panhandle area and Southern Florida. There is a big difference in Southern Florida. You are not Southern. In Northern Florida, near that Panhandle, you are still Southern. Um, and that was kind of a distinction that is joked about in the book, especially at the beginning. Um, but so the Florida part was kind of easy. The cooking stuff, not so much. I probably watched every episode of every show that has ever been on Food Network. I have watched so many shows like, like uh, Julie and Juliet or Juliet and Julia. I don't remember which, how it goes, but any show about that. But one of the things that I really was really important to me was to get as good of a sense of what it was like to be behind the scenes on these shows. And so again, it was a lot of watching video of outtakes and bloopers and Alton Brown has a, like a behind the scenes in the restaurant business or in the, in the reality shows that they do that he has some behind the scenes stuff that's available. Um, watching a lot of the kitchen nightmares because they're actually in the kitchen showing people screwing up, showing people doing well. So a lot of a lot of reality television. And then I actually watched another series that was based it, the point of view from that series was from the production side of a reality dating competition. So that was a lot of the research. And then I started cooking and messing around with some different things and flavors and um, 
every time I wrote a really good cooking chapter, I had to go make something because I was always so hungry. <laughs> so if you are on a diet, maybe not read this book right now. Because <laughs> it will not research the benefits of the whole family. Right. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, so it was it was a lot of research. And then for New York, I've been to New York a couple of times. Um, I had my favorite spots and I, but what I really wanted to do was kind of showcase all of the boroughs. I didn't want to just stick in Manhattan. So like we Staten Island, we kind of see the Statue of Liberty and um, we go to the Bronx Zoo. And just, so I wanted to kind of highlight some of the things and not everything that's famous. Like my, one of my favorite scenes to write is a food truck competition. Because when you go to New York, like there's so many vendors on the streets for food, whether it's a cart or a truck, and you can get some amazing food and not even go more than like 100 feet because they're just all right there together in some places. So um, I wanted to kind of highlight those things. And then, of course, Broadway, because I'm a huge musical person and we had to hit Broadway. What's your favorite musical? So if you... <laughs> I love Hamilton, but right now I'm kind of obsessed with Six the Musical, which is about um, the six wives of Henry VIII. And it's like, you know, it's just kind of this historical drama, dramedy. It is kind of a dramedy um, set to music, but they're all kind of like punk rocker chicks and they tell the story of their lives um, through just some really bad kick butt music. So, kind of obsessed with it. So it's like one of those long-term goals at some point to be to convert one of your novels into a musical that uh, you could go and attend the premiere and all that? Um, I mean, Heather's got a musical, so anything is possible. Uh, and then, um, obviously, uh, Peyton Sinclair is very different than RJ from It's a Wonderful Death. Um, but they are both uh, telling us uh, first-person narratives uh, from a teen point of view. Uh, and I've read a couple of, uh, of your novels that the esteemed audience hasn't yet had the privilege of reading. Uh, and so I know that you, you tend to go first-person most of the time. What is it about uh, first-person perspective that appeals to you? And what opportunities for storytelling does that allow? Um, for me, it's, it's easier to write than third-person because when I write, I kind of see everything playing out in my head as a movie. And so I kind of want to see that from that character's point of view and, and kind of walk around with blinders so I'm not seeing everything else. For this book in particular, it was really important because there were a lot of things going on behind the scene that had the audience known that Peyton didn't know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have worked. There's a lot of secrets and there's a lot of um, manipulation going on and if the if the audience had been aware and Peyton hadn't they would have just been like oh you poor soul and so I didn't want that the other thing is when you're cooking it's such a sensory experience you've got sound you've got taste you've got smells you've you know you're feeling stuff you're cutting yourself whatever and I really wanted to like bring the reader into that experience and feel it hopefully they feel like they're surrounded by all of those senses being triggered through Peyton. Um, and then, of course, you've got a, a, a large cast as well. You've got, what, seven other contestants. So how do you make sure that you distinguish between each of them, make sure that you establish them, create, you know, 
create the competition for Peyton without detracting from your main story of, of Peyton and her journey? Um, that's a great question because it is, to some degree, it's an ensemble cast. Um, but she is the main storyteller. And as far as, I mean, you say there's seven other people in the original manuscript before we started, ha- before we had to cut it down, there were 10 characters that were involved in this process. There was an additional adult who was involved in this process who got um, who got meshed into Caitlin. Um, the judges were a bigger role in the story than they are in this version. And so the thing that I really wanted was to try to keep the voices because they are very unique people, but they're, you know, in the very book, the front of the book, like it's talked about. This is a cast that was specifically chosen to meet kind of a a diverse cast. And so it was a really thin line of writing a character who is of Indian descent and not crossing that line into using that character to try to say, ooh, look, see, diversity is is cool, Um, but really trying to get into that unique experience she might have had. One of the things that helps is every week a cast member gets cut. So that's one less person I have to deal with as we go through the book. It is a cooking competition. Um, But it was important to me that they all had, they all had different voices, but they also had different dreams. And those dreams weren't necessarily what, you know, was being portrayed on the screen, but hopefully getting to know more about the characters. And there were some characters that because of of revisions don't get to, to know quite as well. And I don't know, maybe they'll have to get a story of their own in the future. Well, when you're writing about a character that is so uh, that's outside of your own experience, um, how do you go about making sure that you're presenting an authentic character? Um, part of it is just pray that you didn't screw up really bad. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. You do your research, and I think if you go in with that intention that you are aware that you are trying to do the best you can, um, in some cases, I kept things a little more general, so it wasn't, um, I wasn't getting too deep into, like, a cultural background because I risked, you know, I didn't want to risk offending someone who might read it. But the other thing that I did in the book, and, and we addressed kind of early on, and not everyone's going to agree with the way I did it, and I understand that, but I hope that people realize it came from respect, is we did discuss that when you are cast on a reality show, you are cast as a character, and you are a stereotype in the eyes of the producer. And so figuring out what's real and not real is one of the one of the challenges Peyton has to figure out. So that was, um, yeah, and just show respect to the culture. So find esteemed audience early in their reading says, well, now what's the deal here? There's a stereotype. Rest assured, esteemed audience, you are in good, capable hands with Sherish, but she's going <laughs> to she's going to pay it off. I hope so. I hope that that is how most people um, discover it. And I hope that they will give the characters a chance. Um, it's a lot right at the beginning. It's 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 eight characters that are introduced almost like dumping ice water over somebody's head for a couple of chapters. There's just so many of them. And you want to get that, you know, I wanted to get that rapport between all of them started early. And I know, of course, that you do the the very fast first draft. Do you remember how long the the fast first draft for this one took? 
this was not as fast. This was not as fast because it it was kind of like paint, playing Tetris with the book because there was a storyline. Then there were the landmark challenges that are around New York. Then there were challenges in the kitchen and like trying to keep all of those in order and remember who was supposed to get eliminated when and making sure that somebody who was eliminated didn't show up four chapters later. Um, so it was definitely a challenge. I want to say this one probably took me about two and a half to three months to re to get the draft. And then I would say probably a good year to to get it to the place where I could send it to my editor. <laughs> she could respond back with a very lengthy editorial note. <laughs> uh, and you you had found your editor on Twitter or she found the book on Twitter. How did that work? No. OK, so yes. Yes, it was Twitter involved. So I was just minding my own business and a friend sent me a screenshot from Twitter that it was it was Brittany and she was looking for a reality food competition book. And my book was not done at that time. Like I was still working on it. And so I sent it to my agent and was like, hey, isn't this funny that I'm writing this? We should let her know it's out there. And it turned out um, my editor from It's a Wonderful Death had moved to another publishing house and she had moved to Running Press, which happened to be where Brittany was, you know, working. And so Julie and I had worked so well together on It's a Wonderful Death. And I reached out, Liza reached out to Brittany, but also CC Julie. And it was, it was meant to be. There was so much serendipity, serendipity in this whole situation that it was crazy because I love Julie. I loved working with her. Um, when she left Sky Pony, I was devastated because I was like, I never want to work with another editor the rest of my life. And then to be able to work with her assistant, like her assistant editor was just, that was, that was good. I was good with that. And Brittany was just such a, she was so great and so supportive to work with. We ripped this manuscript apart about 18 different times, trying to make everything fit and everything work. And Oh, I'm so glad she was able to to stay with me. <laughs> so. so, how do you uh, how do you keep your interest in the stories? I gotta imagine by around draft number ten, you're like, this is this is definitely it, right? And no. then, of course, no, not quite. I love all my babies equally for as long as they exist. No, there are times where you're like, oh, this book this book just needs to be done. Um, but I think when it's finally finished, you know, like you're like, okay, this is this is it. This is where it's going to be. And I haven't read it since I turned it in. I've been a little afraid to read it. But the other day, I somebody asked me for a quote from it. I don't know. And I started reading through the chapter, and I was like, oh, this doesn't suck. Okay, this is all right. I'm good. This is good. I'm so glad this is coming out in three weeks, and I'm now okay with it. But um, yeah, it was just it was. A labor of love. I lost about five hours of editing in like an hour and a half before I was supposed to turn it in and found it and only had lost a chapter worth of reviews or revisions. So it was just every time I turned around, I felt like I was going to cry. So my dog was so concerned that night that she ran up to upstairs to get my husband and brought him downstairs because she's like, I was hyperventilating. I couldn't find, you know, chapters and chapters of totally re rewritten chapters and uh, yeah she kind of panicked and freaked out and I was like oh we have a lassie dog 
Did you lose it just due to a uh, computer error or what happened? No, it was totally user error. I don't oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I did something. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, I found it, it, you know, there was an unsaved draft that I found that only didn't have the last chapter done and that was the easiest one to fix. So I was okay. We got it in on time. There wasn't much, many tears shed. It was fine. There's a, a lot of humor in this book. All your, all your writing has a, has a lot of humor, but I'm curious, is that, um, how much of that is there originally and how much of that is the multiple drafts where you're finding a new spot for a joke or how do you go about deciding what the humor ratio should be? So this book, actually, we cut about 20,000 words from the original drive. It was at like 98, 100,000 words and it had to be pared down to 80. So there was a lot that had to be cut and there was a lot of revision that needed to be done. And after I cut some of the big things, the plot had changed, not drastically, but some of the darkness in the book had been taken out, which is actually back when you read this a long time ago, there were some very dark scenes in the book um, with her dad, especially. And all of that stuff, that, that storyline with her dad got cut and then it became a much lighter book. And so when I went through to do my final draft for dialogue, because I do multi, I do stages of drafting and dialogue is I just go through and just do dialogue. Peyton's character had changed enough that she could be lighter and she could have some more quippy lines. She was a little bit more intimidated in earlier drafts and while I understand why she was like that, I also am really happy with how she turned out. She ended up a lot more confident um, and could give as good as she could get. And I love writing, you know, sarcastic, quippy female characters who don't back down and who are always willing to fight for themselves. And I, I hope that that's how Peyton comes off. What in the process do you feel like you've got the character it's on the page? Or she's on the page. When the deadline comes. <laughs> no, I mean, because I could always tinker with my characters and their lines. I could, I could probably pick up the book when I finally get to see it. I could probably pick up the book, take a pen, and go and rewrite every single page, and and change it a little bit here and a little bit there, um, and that is why deadlines are really good for me because they make me have to stop and not overthink it all the time. So, but yeah. That since the audience just bought their copy and you can't, you can't make any changes. Um, I, like my agent or my editor said, you, tr you trust the process because I'm not the only person with eyes on this book. There are, I have, I had at Running Press, I had an amazing team that worked with me. Um, it's, it's the first time that I've had like a like you know I had a copy editor and then I had another editor Michael who like was the go between between me and the copy editor and there were just so many people with eyes on this book that I had to trust that my cynicism was the thing that was getting in the way and that they saw something that I just at that moment hadn't seen. Uh, so speaking of eyes on the manuscript, uh, this is one where I, uh, your friendly neighborhood middle grade ninja, am thanked in the back. How wonderful. 
Uh, and all of our uh, mutual friends, it seems like, made the list as well, because uh, Lisa Phipps is in there, and esteemed audience will remember, uh, Lisa was my uh, guest for episode 106. Uh, Annie Sullivan is mentioned, uh, who was a guest for episodes 40 and 83. Uh, Laura Martin uh, is mentioned, our mutual friend uh, and critique partner, who was a, uh, the very first guest ever on the show, as well as episode 35. Um, and now that this is episode 136, it occurs to me, I got to call, I got to contact Laura. We got to get her back on here. It's been too long. Uh, and then a very special thank you to one of my favorite people, uh, Shannon Lee Alexander. And because uh, Shannon has told me she's not coming on the show until she publishes her next book, uh, we should take just a quick moment and glow her up. Uh, why, what, what, how, what did Shannon do that was so very helpful on, uh, with this manuscript? Um, so I can't really say without giving something away, but, um, well, number one, she's just an amazing human being who every time I was like, this is the worst thing I've ever written. She's like, no, it's not. You've written worse. Um, <laughs> she didn't really say that. Like, oh, she's so a nice person. <laughs> she would never actually say that. But, um, there is a, a little, a little, a little plot, a little sub story that goes on in the book that she is incredibly entirely responsible for because she really, really liked a particular character and um, did not like the way the original manuscript ended. <laughs> so if you don't like the ending of the book, it's all Shannon Lee Alexander's fault. And Shannon Lee Alexander, of course, is the author of Love and Other Unknown Variables, which esteemed audience should also be putting in the card. Esteemed audience, we're going to hook you up with so <laughs> many books. You're going to be you're going to be set for a while. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, I this book was um, the cannibals like really did rip this apart, but made it so much better and so much stronger. And I'm really so grateful for you guys having been a part of this book. It, it wouldn't be what it is without you guys. So, oh, and same. Uh, you've been <laughs> on the last two bannockers. Um, it's a, it's a, it's been a good group. And now that the pandemic is knock on every piece of wood in this house, uh, hopefully drawing to a close, we can maybe uh, all get together again uh, mm -hmm. in uh, in meat spaces, as my wife is always saying. <laughs> um, and I. Promised esteemed audience that we we talk money, and I try never to disappoint esteemed audience. Uh, and we are going to do that, but I always try to run this show like if I were going to be on somebody's show, what kind of questions would I want them to ask me? And I would love to have a free space, and I want to give one to you. What's a question that you wish someone had asked? <laughs> you whisked, isn't that adorable? <laughs> you whisked that someone had asked you about this book. Um, um, let's pretend that I ask it, and that would that I give you the opportunity to answer it. I think it would be what was the hardest thing about writing this book? And I would say, like any reality television show, not everything was able to make the cut in this in this book. And there were some scenes that I desperately loved that unfortunately were cut. And um, it, there's just, you know, there's there's a part of me that wishes I could have had a, a much longer book just because some of these characters have such great stories and and that's my one regret but in the end they all served their purpose they all did a great job and uh but yeah it's just that was the saddest part is there were so many great scenes there was a whole camping scene that got cut 
that I was like, this is the chance to have fun, really see the characters you know, let loose. But it was also four chapters long, so I had to go. Well, you save everything you cut in a, in a different file, right? Mm-hmm. So that could be the seed for another <laughs> eventually, hopefully. I hope so. Yeah. A sequel. <laughs> um, I don't think there'll be a sequel. I so a long time ago, I I figured out where my place is in the literary world, and I I don't really want to do sequels. I think once a story has been told and, and it's been brought to fruition, then it's done, and that person gets to live their life. But I do like to drop characters into each of my books who will, who are are slated to get their own story in a future book. So Peyton is actually an offshoot of the book that I'm working on right now. Her story, um, she interacts with another character in a completely separate book. So lots and lots of little um, possibilities for future books. Ours, those characters are still here. Of course, that book is an adult romance. So nice. <laughs> nice yeah. <laughs> Can can we say anything about uh, what you're working on currently, or is that bad luck? Um, no. Well, I don't know if it'll get published, so I guess I don't know if that's good or bad luck. No. Um, I I have two boys that are teenagers. They're both in high school now, and um, they fight like cats and dogs all the time. Like they've been fighting this whole time we've been talking. Um, and I wanted to just write a good brother road trip story, so. That's what I'm attempting to do. I'll sit around uh, conventions, like Comic-Con kind of stuff. But not Comic-Con because I don't want to get sued. What a novel idea and certainly not something I have read any drafts of. Hmm. (laughs) Yeah, it'll still be different. (laughs) I promise you, I've cut like half of the book. But yeah, you have. You've seen this one in a different form. I was just thinking, I know your family is big on on Marvel and Star Wars. It's a Disney Plus must be doing you guys right through the pandemic, right? Oh, my gosh, yes. When the pandemic, like when everyone was in lockdown, we had my kids came to name it Forced Family Fun Nights because we forced them to sit down with us on Tuesdays and Saturday nights. And we watched all the Marvel movies, all the Star Wars movies, um, my husband is now trying to get me to watch some of the DC movies. And I'm just like, I mean, I'll watch Wonder Woman and Aquaman. That's cool. But um, we actually started with Justice League last night, like the uncut version. So, yeah, that's, that's going to yeah. be a couple of nights watching. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we're a total geek family. We do board game nights. Um, we have, like, we've watched movies out in the pool. I will never, we were watching The Bad Batch in the pool. And then we watched some Mandalorian in the pool. <laughs> so that was kind of our fun summer thing that we did. Um, but yeah, we're total geeks in this house. As well, it should be. By the audience. What's been your favorite of the uh, of the new Marvel shows so far? So I'm not a big fan of What If. I'm just going to say that right now. Because it always seems to take the characters I love and make me not love them as much. Um I liked WandaVision because it was so complicated. Like, it was so, what? Like, you, like every episode, you're like, what the heck just happened? Um, so I would say WandaVision would probably be my favorite. I've been, I have not watched Loki because Loki's one of my favorite characters. So I've been putting it off until I can binge watch it. And then I got a job. And then that ruined everything. 
<laughs> so, so I'm going to say probably WandaVision is my favorite so far. You have to schedule some vacation time when they ask you why. Just let them know. I got to I gotta get on this Loki. I know. <laughs> over over oh, Christmas vacation. Over great. Christmas break, we'll do that. Well, Sarah J. Schmidt, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? I thought I saw a flying saucer. My husband said, no, that's a satellite. Um, but it seemed really weird and I felt like something was watching me. So I still stand by it was a flying saucer. And I have never seen a ghost, but I have, um, when I was in college, I went to the uh, Holocaust Museum and I walked through one of the rail cars and it's the coldest, most like, painful place in the world that I have ever been and I felt like I was surrounded by by souls like I just felt that so that's going to be my I haven't seen it but I'm pretty sure I, I was felt I felt it wouldn't it be uh, ironic uh, when you die if the afterlife turns out to be exactly as you described it and it was it's a wonderful death but oh perfect Exactly I know. I'll know exactly what to do. <laughs> I would I would love it. And that you know, so those people, those of you who haven't had the chance to read It's a Wonderful Death, please, you know, feel free to check it out. But um that book was so much fun to write because like I said with the debuts, it was just freedom to write whatever I wanted. And I was going through a process a time when um my grandmother had just died. And then a few days before I started this book, my 19-year-old cousin died from the flu. And I was, so I was in a period of mourning when I wrote this book and when I was writing what the afterlife looked like, I, it was where I wanted to see my family. Like that's what I wanted them to experience. So it was really um, an emotional uh, time, but it ended up being a lot of fun. And I want to play cornhole between the gates of heaven and hell, which hell is not really hell in my book, but still, I think that would be fun. It's funny because an, an afterlife game of cornhole is my vision of hell. Like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's such an unhoosier thing for me to say. <laughs> that is. I mean, it was it, it was started at another school in the neighboring state, but whatever. If there's like a euchre table set up, oh, well, perfect. This this is the hell for Hoosiers. And like some people are playing cornhole, but I get to go over here to the euchre table. We're good. <laughs> my in-laws will probably be there, so you'll be fine. <laughs> Well, I, uh, I promised esteemed audience, and I tried never to break uh, my promise to esteemed audience, that we would talk a little bit about money. Um, so here we are, we're, we're book two. I, of course, know that you are fabulously wealthy at all times. Um, always flaunting it, it's a little embarrassing. Because <laughs> I married up, with, I married a man with insurance. <laughs> um, but how has the pandemic impacted uh, your author income and, and what sort of things have you seen happening with other author uh, authors income? Um, well, for me personally, you know, I've got a book coming out in the fall and this should be a time where I am booking tons of school visits and getting to go and really interact with middle school and high school students. And, and it's one of my most, it's probably my favorite part of this entire process is really getting to engage with readers. But because of the pandemic, because of you know, different protocols at different schools. It just doesn't, some schools are letting people come in, some schools aren't, very few are. And it's like, that was where I actually made um, 
a significant amount of my author income was from going to school visits. Um, and it was also not just that, like that was also part of the part of what inspired me to write my next book. This book, um, Where There's a Whisk, actually was inspired from a school visit that I did um, in a county that had just been named like one of the worst counties in Indiana to live in. And you could just see it on the kid's face. And so this book kind of came out of that experience and wanting to show people that are kids, teenagers, that you can be dealt a, a bad hand in life. But if you have dreams and you do what you can to work with them, and sometimes you get lucky, like it does take a little bit of luck, but you keep working and you keep persevering that you may, you can find success. You can find your dreams. They may not be exactly what you thought they were going to be, but you can still achieve those dreams and not to give up. And that was kind of where this book was born was from a school visit. So not getting to go into schools and engage with students and, and get that like dose of excitement that comes from somebody who's meeting an author that, you know, not, not me, just any author that is like taking time to talk with them about their love of books and their love of writing. Like that's what gets me juiced up to write the next book. So that is, it's not just the financial hit. It's also that creative hit too. So yay pandemic. <laughs> well, uh, I know you're currently in the process of enjoying Zack Snyder's Justice League. I wrote a long post available now with Steve audience at middlegradeninja.com about how that was one of the signals to me that everything in this world could be made good again. It wasn't completely over. So, oh my God, the thing I never thought I'd see, Zack Snyder's Justice League has miraculously been delivered to all of us. And I'm so uplifted by this that I'm choosing to see um, uh, optimism um, most everywhere I look anymore. Like if we could get Zack Snyder's Justice League, what isn't possible? <laughs> anything, I'm telling you, man, we can do anything. Uh, and we have talked a, a little bit about one option for you in terms of continuing to publish some of these books that are tie-ins to your current books that, that, that maybe wouldn't have the appeal for a publishing house might be to self-publish and become a hybrid author. And you've actually had conversations with your agent about doing just that. So what's the diplomatic way to go about those conversations and what might that look like? Well, and that's going to be different for every every agent and the author. Um, Liza and I had talked about, we've been talking about hybrid for a, for a couple of years. Um, and I had always been like, it's, it's enough for me just to get like a novel done every five years. So can we just hold off on that? Like I wasn't ready to talk about that. Um, but because we kind of laid that groundwork, I went to her and I said, look, I've got these projects. You've already passed on them. They're not really tied to, to this particular book. They're, it's actually the first book that I ever wrote. I said, I want to take that book. I want to pick a different character who is snarky and sarcastic and funny. And I want to write the story from her point of view. And But because it's shapeshifters and werewolves and vampires and all that stuff, I said, it's, you know, it's not going to have that mass appeal, especially with the publishing house that I'm with. I think I just want to write for fun and I want to self-publish. And she was like, okay, do it. She's like, if it helps to like uplift your writing and it helps you to enjoy writing, then absolutely do what you need to do. Um, so that was, it was a delicate conversation. She was really supportive. And like I said, she has from day one always been con more concerned about me as the individual than 
making a buck. Like she has always put what's best for me in the forefront and has said many times, if it takes you, if you only write a book every five years, then every five years we'll put a book out. That's, you know, whatever you need to do. And um, so she was really supportive. And I like the idea of, you know, and actually you're kind of an inspiration for that too, because when I, watching you do the book of David over all of those months, years that you were working on that story, and we talked about like putting it out in a serial, I started thinking about this book and how maybe that's something to do. So I have like the shorter, the shorter chapters that are sets, you know, books, whatever that need to be written. So it gives me a little bit of time to work on both that traditional publication and the the more self-published kind of side of it. So that's your fault. That's on you, man. <laughs> well, we'll see how it comes out. When it's a tremendous success, I will take all the credit. I, I use the idea. And if it's a failure, I'll tell everyone, I told her not to do it. I don't. <laughs> I have no doubt. I have no doubt. <laughs> no, you, uh, you are a determined, dogged worker. You stay with these books. And I'm, I'm so proud that you've got your, your second book out. And I know we're going to have this conversation again. Um, and you're going to continue to write. I mean, I, I assume, and it, it's an assumption, although I think I'm right, is that even if there was no money involved ever, you keep writing. I think so. I think, I think it's just it's something that fuels me, and it's hard to work in when you're busy. And I keep reminding myself, like my my kids are in high school, and it's not going to be long before this house is quiet, and I don't have to run everyone to swim practice, and there'll be time. And I'm kind of holding on to those days that that thought. But yeah, I think when you're a writer, and it's part of what fills your cup up, and it's cut, it's part of what it's how you view the world. Like you can't not do it because then you start to suffocate yourself. So yeah, I would write even if there wasn't money, but you know. Wouldn't say no to money also. Sure. Mama has expensive coffee taste, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sarah, this might be one of the shortest conversations you and I have ever had. <laughs> but it has been an absolute pleasure. I'm, I'm so glad we did it. Uh, my last question for you for tonight. Uh, is always some variation. Uh, if you could go back toward the start of your career, middle of your career, wherever it would be useful to you, um, to go back and give yourself some information that would have made a difference for you and might make a difference for all the writers who are watching us or listening to us now, what would you go back and tell yourself? Um, it would be right after my first book came out and I would tell myself to stop comparing yourself to everybody else. Your writing journey is yours and yours alone. You are not measured by anyone else's success nor are you penalized by anyone else's success. That's the, that's the note to end on. Where can an esteemed audience uh, find you online and follow you on social media and all that good stuff? Um, you can follow me on Instagram, which is Sarah J. Schmidt. You can follow me on Twitter, which is SJ Schmidt. You can follow me on TikTok, which is Sarah J. Schmidt. There might be an underscore. I'll have to let you know if you want to add those to this podcast. That'd be awesome. Well, they'll all be on the show notes, esteemed audience. You just check Excellent. them up waiting for you. 
Uh, as always, esteemed audience, uh, head to middlegradeninja.com for interviews with all the, the best people. You know what? Download your free copy of The Book of David, Chapter 1 by Robert Kent, the book that inspired Sarah J. Schmidt. Uh, check that out. And by the time you're hooked, by golly, there's four more uh, in that series waiting for you. Get your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Pay cash money for your copy of All Together Now, a zombie story. And as always, God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week. Thank you.